Hey guys, I'm lead pastor Noel Peepgrass, and I just wanted to welcome you to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a church family to be a part of, or feel called to join a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in our historic building at 218 West Pine Street. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or visit our Instagram page. Thanks for listening. So last week, uh, we were we were cutting some holes in the wall um, in order to use fish tape to run uh, the cables uh, for these uh, TV monitors that we have up here on the wall um, through the wall. And so we're, we're cutting holes and we're running the fish tape through the wall. And uh, Tyler and Noah were here helping me out. And, <clears throat> and uh, I had my hand in the bottom hole trying to grab the, the guide fish tape. Uh, through the hole and I, I was just squeezing my hand through the hole and and as I squeezed my hand through the hole I could just barely grab the fish tape and then at one point I realized that in order to pull the fish tape through the hole I'm actually gonna have to change my hand position and let go of the fish tape but I didn't want to let go of the fish tape because I had worked hard to get a hold of it But as some of you are aware, sometimes you can fit your hand into a hole, but you have to let go of what you're holding on to in order to actually get it out. And many of you have maybe had the same experience with a cookie or a candy jar where you want to take a handful, a huge handful maybe, but then you have to decide to either get your hand out of the jar or hold on to the candy, but you can't do both. And I've seen, and I, I've uh, I've seen video of this technique being used in the trapping of animals. Maybe some of you have seen videos like it, where the animal will stick its hand into the trap to grab hold of the bait, and then is unwilling to let go in order to get itself out, and will thus be trapped instead of embracing the freedom by letting go. You see, the moral of the story is that you can often get into an opening fine, but in order to get out, you have to let go of what it is you're holding on to. And I believe this picture is is helpful as we look at today's passage in Matthew 16. As we read these words of Jesus, we learn that if we're going to fully take hold of all he has to offer, we have to be willing to let go of what we're holding on to. And as I teach this morning, I, I just want to encourage you to consider to be thoughtful about what it might be that you're holding on to. What is it that God may be specifically asking you to let go of today so that you could step out of a prior way of being and, and take hold of that which will truly bring you life? This passage today comes on the heels of the absolutely monumental passage we studied last week. And And I believe these passages go together to give us a picture of two key aspects that form the foundation of a gospel-centered church. Last week, we were in uh, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, and we saw saw the great confession of Peter, who, in response to Jesus' eternal question, who do you say that I am, answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
In this passage, we learn that one mark of a true disciple is this key recognition of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the divine Son of God, sent to rescue and to redeem God's fallen creation. We learn that insofar as we point to Jesus as the Christ, our confession becomes the rock upon which Jesus builds his church. Now, last week I said that the significance of this passage was was not in Peter's personal character, but in the person of Jesus whom he pointed toward. In fact, Jesus said in that passage that Peter's confession of faith in Jesus was a gift from our Father in heaven, meaning Peter could not take credit for his pointing faith. In today's passage, we see just one reason why the rock is not the person Peter, but the pointing Peter. Because in these verses, uh, just a few moments after Peter's confessed his faith in the Christ, we see him receive the Lord's rebuke. Actually, as we've just now read aloud in today's passage, this Peter whose confession is the rock upon which Christ will build his church is called Satan by our Lord. That's right, Satan. Hardly the person Christ is building upon. I think we can all agree. So why does Peter receive this rebuke? I think it's because he's unwilling to accept Jesus' announcement that he must suffer and die The rebuke is directly tied to Peter's rejection of the idea, God's plan of Jesus' suffering and death. You see, in chapter 16, Jesus is forming his new community, the church, and he's teaching her his way to be the Messiah that Peter has just confessed. But his way of being the Messiah is not a way of success. Rather, the way of the Messiah is suffering, and Peter's not having it. He is not here for it. So let's take a look at verse 21, and we'll see Jesus' plan of suffering. It says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So the theme of the first half of Matthew has been summarized very well by chapter 4, verse 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And if that's so, I think the theme of the second half of Matthew's gospel is summarized here in verse 21 with the phrase, must suffer deeply. See, Galilee uh, has been the home of Jesus' ministry, but now we'll see Jerusalem to be the site of his suffering. In this verse, we, we get a bit of an oxymoron. I'm going to use three literary devices that I learned in my high school language arts class. And here we see the suffering Christ. This must have felt like an oxymoron to Peter. I mean, doesn't Christ come to end human suffering? So then how is it that he is going to suffer? This can't be. Yet Jesus says in verse 21, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer. Another way to say that he must go is, it is absolutely necessary for me to go to Jerusalem and suffer. I learned this week that in the Greek, the connotation is that this absolute necessity is willed by God. Jesus says, God wills that I must go to Jerusalem and suffer. How can this be? Peter's thinking. 
And, you know, if we look at the people of Israel, they were very familiar with the idea of the suffering prophet. All of their prophets in the Old Testament would have been the type that were rejected by man, that lived difficult lives, often outside the boundaries of normal society. So the idea of the suffering prophet was not one that they were unfamiliar with, but a suffering Messiah. You see, they expected a triumphant Messiah, a successful Messiah, a conquering Messiah. The suffering Christ? Peter has a problem with this, with this plan of suffering and death. So on the topic of death, uh, this passage tells us who's going to kill Jesus. I think this is ironic, another literary device I learned in language class. This is ironic. Who's going to kill Jesus? It says the Sanhedrin, the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish Supreme Court. This was the highest level of judicial authority in Judaism. Jesus says it's the religious leaders who are going to kill me. These are the ones we would have thought would get Jesus, who would have understood him. The ones who would have been ready to receive him and, and perhaps the ones who would be pointing us towards him. And yet they're the ones, Jesus says, that are going to kill him. <clears throat> it's so ironic. It's not the Romans. It's not the pagans. It's not the Gentiles. Jesus was to be killed by his own. The third literary device that we see in this passage is one of foreshadowing. And of course, at the end of verse 21, <clears throat> we read that it says, On the third day, be raised to life. Jesus is foreshadowing <clears throat> that yes, he'll suffer, he'll die, but he's also going to be raised on the third day to new life. <clears throat> this resurrection add-on almost feels insignificant in the midst of the mind bomb that, that, that his announcement of suffering and death has brung. In faithful teaching, the glory of his resurrection must always be joined to his humiliating death. And so Jesus foreshadows not just his suffering and his death, but also his resurrection. But Peter, Peter doesn't even have ears to hear this part because he, he's so focused on the surprise of his suffering and death. And so it says in verse 22, here we see two rebukes. First, the rebuke of Peter to Jesus. And then in verse 23, Jesus' rebuke of Peter. It says in verse 22 that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. In the Greek, this, uh, this idea of, uh, that gets translated, took him aside, it, it, it has this connotation of when someone of superior position comes to the aid of someone of inferior position. What's Peter trying to do? Peter's trying to protect Jesus from himself. It's as if Peter thinks he knows better than Jesus how this should go. And it, it's startling that this is precisely when Peter is trying to protect Jesus that Jesus calls Peter satanic. It's precisely when Peter is trying to protect that Jesus calls him satanic. And I think we err like Peter, not only when we follow our worst thoughts, our sinful thoughts, our evil thoughts, but we err like Peter even when we follow our best thoughts, 
oh, I'm going to protect Jesus from this suffering, Peter was thinking. And I believe this illustrates why Jesus has been, he's been, he's been demanding secrecy about his Messiahship, right? Because as we see here, see, Peter has understood who Jesus is. He gets the first half of the gospel. He understands that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's wrong about how Jesus is the Messiah. He does not understand Jesus' path, his plan of suffering and death. <clears throat> In our translation, it, uh, Peter's words are never Lord. But some translators use um, the phrase, God is merciful, Lord. This could never happen. See, Peter thinks God's mercy or, or God's grace is the reason why Jesus could never suffer. And we must be careful, lest we think we know what God's love or mercy is like, just like Peter here. See, God's love does not cancel his judgment or his allowance for suffering. Look, let me tell you how it's not. It's not like this. Sinners face eternal judgment, but God is loving, so he won't actually condemn anyone. Let me give you another example of a way that we might do this. Oh, God loves my child so much. He would never allow tragedy to befall them. You see, when our view of God's mercy and love have no room for judgment and suffering, we have a biblically incompatible view of his mercy and love. So Jesus calls Peter satanic. Get behind me, he says, which is a different way of saying the first words Peter heard from Jesus. Way back at the beginning of Matthew, when, when Jesus saw Peter fishing and said, come follow me, here he says, get behind me. See, a disciple's place is to follow. It's not to lead via correction or rebuke. Look, when, when we think we know better than Jesus, we're not following, we're leading. And being ahead of Jesus isn't discipleship. We have to get behind him. We have to follow him. And this often includes getting ourselves under his clear but hard-to-like teachings. In this case, his plan for suffering and death. This is one of the reasons why we're such a big fan here of exegetical preaching. What that means is just verse-by-verse, line-by-line preaching, passage-by-passage. We're going through the book of Matthew. We're, We're not completely against thematic preaching here at Exeter Valley Church. You may notice that I do from time to time preach thematically, but we go through the scriptures passage by passage, verse by verse, in order to avoid the temptation to preach our best thoughts, my best thoughts, and instead to put us over and, I'm sorry, to put us over and over again underneath the clear teaching of Jesus in the scriptures. We want to be under the entire counsel of scripture so that even the hard or, or, or unlikable teachings of Jesus become our authority, not just the ones that we like, not just our pet phrases, not just our pet passages. The next thing I want you to notice is how quickly Peter goes from faith to failure. It's just a few verses of time. This is a good reminder that even faithful disciples are not released from conflict with unbelief, pride, or fear. 
Dale Frederick Bruner, the, the commentator who I've been drawing so heavily from in this Matthew series. He says, the disciple must constantly relearn the hard art of following Jesus. Following Jesus is an art, not a science, but an art. The very man, Peter, who has just been filled with God's revelation a few verses earlier, is now filled with Satan's. Look, sometimes our best, best thoughts aren't just bad, they're satanic. This reminds me of the Canaanite woman Jesus called a pet dog. Man, you know, that, that was hard to understand, but that's nothing compared to being called Satan, is it? It made me think, I mean, I know, I know Jesus is loving. I know that he's, he's good, but is he even nice? <clears throat> Here he calls Peter Satan. Sometimes our best thoughts, like Peter's, aren't just bad. They're satanic. Peter has gone from being a rock just a few verses earlier to a stumbling block in the present passage. Whenever we point to Jesus as the Messiah, you guys, we're the rock. We are rocks. Our confession, our pointing to Jesus is a rock that he'll build his church upon. But whenever we protect anyone from the Messiah's way of suffering, we become stumbling blocks. Satan. Satan is found in any influence that causes us to turn back from the hard way of discipleship to Jesus. So Peter has gone from sharpest disciple to satanic in just a number of verses. The church, like Peter, has, a, has the same dual nature. Here's what I mean. Uh, the church is both God-used and devil-used. The church can be both Christ's main instrument for preaching his gospel, for pointing people to his lordship. And it can also be his main impediment, turning people away from the person and work of Jesus. Like Abraham in, in Genesis 12, if you can think back to that story of Father Abraham in Genesis 12, we see that Peter, uh, the bearer of the promise, is himself the greatest threat to the promise. Remember uh, Abraham, who, whose faith was counted to him as righteousness, just a few verses later, is lying about his wife, twice saying that his wife is his sister, not his wife, in order to prevent danger from coming upon his family. See, in Peter, we learn that the cross is an offense to the world, but the things contrary to the cross are an offense to Christ. Peter's confession of Jesus the Christ was revealed by the Father. But, notice this, while his confession of Jesus as the Christ was revealed by the Father, his rejection of Christ's suffering comes from human resources. You see, Satan inspires human obsession with greatness. Christ inspires the divine concern for lowliness and service. Satan leads up. Jesus leads down. It is not enough to point to Christ. We must also follow him. Pointing to Christ is the rock. Pointing to Christ is the rock. And in that analogy, if pointing to Christ is the rock, well, then following Christ is the cement that makes it all stick. You cannot honor the person of Christ without obeying the teachings of Christ. Peter is the model here for paradoxical human weakness and divine strength. See, in Peter, we see our propensity to step out of the boat and yet fear the waves, to confess the Christ and yet rebuke his call to suffering. To call him Lord 
yet later, as we'll learn, deny knowing him three times. Peter's the model for paradoxical human weakness and divine strength. We see here that it's possible to be Christ-centered without being cross-centered. And we can become so focused on Christ's victory in the world that we reject Scripture's teaching of his failing in the world. It reminds me of this proverb, 14, verse 12. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end leads to destruction. Sometimes it's not just our worst thoughts, but our best thoughts that become an impediment to the gospel. So here we learn through Peter that Christ and his church will not always appeal to triumph. There will be dark days. There will be suffering and death before eventual eternal glory. This brings us to this next little section of this passage I like to call the sermon. Verse 24 through 27, Jesus follows his rebuke of Peter with the most substantial teaching since the mission sermon that we read about in Matthew chapter 10. Thinking about this, uh, this response of Jesus after rebuking him, he, he, he gives him a lecture, doesn't he? Isn't the lecture the worst kind of punishment? I know I hate it in my house when I got the lecture punishment. It's like, good grief, mom and dad. Could you just give me a spanking or, or take away my cell phone, right? Don't lecture me. Here Jesus goes, uh, goes to follow this rebuke with a lecture. And in, in verse 24, we, we hear the famous words, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. As if it's not enough to hear that Christ will suffer, Jesus says that following him requires we follow him unto death. And, and not a, not, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. This isn't like a David Koresh, like Waco, Texas call to mass suicide. That's not what's going to happen. But nonetheless, uh, following Jesus requires we, we follow him unto death. And if we're honest, we, we often glorify the resurrection life that's promised without considering the suffering life it will cost us. The call to Jesus is a call from self-centered ambition and to self-denying suffering. Look, I know this is... Uh, this is the Shrink the Church sermon, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, who wants to hear this? This isn't the sermon that you preach to grow your church. Jesus in Matthew 7, uh, he, uh, he has this call, Come to me, all you who are weary. And we see this same call here in this passage where his call is to follow me into self-denial. The call is from the person of Jesus, and it's to the person of Jesus. Notice he, he does not say, follow my teachings. Instead, he says, follow me. The call to discipleship is a call to be with Jesus. And remember, follow. This is the place for a disciple behind Jesus, not in front of him as Peter has positioned himself. And remember, this is precisely the problem here. Peter's getting in front of Jesus is the problem. And it's a great reminder, the story of Peter, that discipleship must constantly be renegotiated. We get it right and we miss the boat, sometimes all in the same day. And notice the option before the listener here. There's an option. 
Whoever wants to be my disciple, Jesus says. See, no one's compelled. No one's compelled. There's an option. No one's compelled. But, but if he will, if we will come to Jesus, we must submit to the conditions. No one's compelled, but there are conditions. Now, in our last passage, we read that faith is a gift from God, and it's not of human origin. <clears throat> in this passage, we learn that discipleship is freely chosen, not forced upon us. I think this is an important contrast to point out because once again, we see that there's a tension in scripture between God's sovereignty and our own human responsibility or choice. So if we choose to follow, what must one do? Well, it says that one must deny themselves. This is the way to unhitch ourselves from our fallen flesh, to deny ourselves to let go of the lordship of our own thinking. We tend to think of self-denial as something so pithy as you know, giving up soda or carbs or social media at Lent. Yet Jesus' call is higher. It's the call to give up on ourselves as lords and let another lord rule our life. Listen, if he's not lord of all, he's not lord at all, Jesus will not play second fiddle. And if we're honest, the self-denial Jesus calls us to is no small feat, is it? It seems really hard. I mean, um, what about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? What about the American dream? We're swimming in a culture of successism and individualism. Self-denial is hardly our culture's definition of the good life. But Jesus' way of self-denial the submission to his lordship. Mm, this is a whole different animal. And I'm here to tell you that bondage to Jesus frees us from bondage to all other lords. In Jesus' inverted upside down kingdom, bondage to himself is freedom from all other lords. When we let go of ourselves, our own desires, our own ambitions, our own ideas of how life should work, we get free from the things that hold us hostage. The grip of making money, the grip of keeping up with the Joneses, the grip of impressing people, the grip of substance abuse or other vices. There's freedom in bondage to Jesus. And look, I have a, I have a money back guarantee to make this morning. Here it is. If we'll let go of our lesser lords, if we'll deny ourselves and surrender to the Lord of Lords, we will be more free than we could ever imagined. Friends, there is freedom under the Lordship of Jesus. Which is why verse 25 says that whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Look, there's a way of living that's not actually living. Jesus says whoever wants to save his life We'll lose it. The math here is paramount. We can't miss it. In order to live fully into Christ's vision for life, we must fully die to our own vision for life. There are only two options. One, live for ourselves and die. Or two, die to ourselves and live. And I want to say that I think this, this verse, this passage, it has in view the final judgment 
which is that self-centered careers may get ahead in this life, but on judgment day, there's a price to pay. The weight of eternity rests on our choice in the here and now. It's as Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the inverted way of Jesus. And, and, and I hate it when the church can be so scared to talk about the concept of final judgment. I hate it when, when, we, when we're tempted or prone to moralize Jesus' teachings into a sort of how to be a better person and live a happy life. I mean, I get it. There's, there's some truth in that way of thinking. I, I do think that in the here and now, obedience to Jesus' teaching can lead to improved character and fruitful living. But there's also some danger when this message becomes the main thing because I, I believe that it can lead us away from a, a life or death truth if we're not careful. For what's on the line and the option to deny self or live for self is eternal. And this is what Jesus addresses in verse 26 as he says, what good is it then if a man owns the world in this life only to lose their own soul in the eternal life to come. We often live as if our lives on earth are all there is, but there's more. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but, what on, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. My guy uh, Bruner says it this way. <clears throat> At the last judgment, some of us will be dumbfounded to find that what we thought was innocent, seeking of good and beautiful things for ourselves and our children, was actually a whoring after alien gods and the use of religion to advance our own status. You guys, how tragic would it be to gain the world and yet, lose your soul. When we read this passage, we have to consider the weight of eternity. Speaking of eternity, Jesus has been talking about eternity, and now he ends his mini-sermon with a summary of what will happen on the day of judgment in verses 27 and 28. And it's as if he's answering the question that, that you may be thinking, what's the point of all this talk about living dying and the soul well the point is that jesus notices the way we live our lives when he returns again to once and for all redeem this broken world he's going to reward us for how we've lived the tale of the tape will come down to this have we repented have we put our faith in jesus the christ and has this shown itself out in our obedience to his ways? See, Jesus' warning in these final verses, it, it makes his coming seem near. There's urgency. There's an eternal urgency here. And, and, and this can be hard to reconcile 2,000 years later. I mean, was, was Jesus wrong? Uh, or, or did Matthew hear him wrong? It seems like he's, very urgent here, like the kingdom is coming soon. He says that some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So all these years later, when these men who are standing with Jesus have tasted death 
and yet we've not seen his second coming. What are we to believe? What are we to do with these warnings that seem to have predicted Jesus would be coming again very soon? I studied hard this week, and I'm here to tell you that I, I'm not too sure about the time frames and what Jesus meant here. But I am sure about the urgency of the message. And I think that's the point for us to take home today in these last two verses. See, when it comes to judgment, there is no dilly-dallying. It's an urgent matter. And therefore, denying oneself, taking up one's cross, and following Jesus is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of the eternal state of our souls. <clears throat> I mean, think about it. Are we living today as if our choices will matter for eternity? Are we dying to ourselves in order to truly live in Jesus? Folks, uh, as a church, we, we can't miss the foundational teachings of this passage and the one that came before it. First and foremost, the true church is built on Christ-centered doctrine. We must confess for all to know that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, our rescuer and our redeemer. We must be a church that orders its doctrine around this central precept. Our hope is found in Christ alone. But the second concept introduced in this passage, the second half of the gospel truth, if you will, is Christ-following obedience. Look, it's not enough to proclaim Christ with our mouths if we have not been willing to follow him through obedience to his teachings, even his hard-to-like teachings like suffering, even into self-denial and a death that may not be literally martyrdom, but is certainly a spiritual death to our own way in submission to his way. Look, it's not enough just to point to Jesus as the Christ we must also follow him through obedient living, through self-denial and suffering. And as I close this morning, I, I wanted to come back to the thought I had you start with. Is there something you're holding on to? Have you heard this morning the Savior's voice inviting you to let go so that you might take hold of something eternal, something more solid, 